everybody, this is Andreas Deja talking, and enjoy the great, big, beautiful podcast. people coming to my signings and the mom would say my daughter 10 12 14 year old daughter whatever loves princess academy or whatever book of mine and then there would always be a brother or sister off in the back and i'd say what about that one and they, <laughs> and they kind of whispered to me oh he or she isn't a reader oh right. and, ugh, and I, I hate, hate that. that but i know from experience that every kid is a reader if they have the right book and some kids are visual learners and so um comic books just well, Dean grew up reading comics. Oh, yeah, no, I would not have kept reading if it had not been for yeah. the X-Men. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. Welcome to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Another great week. Another great week here on the podcast. You can find us on Twitter at the GBB Podcast, Facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast. How you doing, Jamie? I'm doing excellent. How you doing, Justin? Excellent. And you know what? This week I noticed... Um, a little bit of chatter going on on uh, yeah. Facebook or about? on Twitter. Not fa- not t- Facebook. I'm sorry, Twitter. About I, what? I, there's a guy on there that said he found our podcast the week that we interviewed uh, Rob Paulson. Oh, yeah? And he's saying that he, he gave us a suggestion of having uh, Janet Waldo from the Jetsons yes. on. How awesome is that? I That's never pretty even awesome. Yeah, and I have to admit... That is a pretty awesome suggestion, and I've added it to the list, and I will do my best. Like, but. I, that's not, you know, I'm in love with Saturday morning cartoons from yesteryear, and I never even thought of that. That wasn't yeah. even something I thought of. Like, neither, neither did I. Quite honestly, I didn't think anybody was still alive who did those voices. But, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> yeah, she was the voice of Judy, and I guess she's still around, uh, still working, maybe. So that's incredible. I'll see what I can do. That's incredible. And pertaining to our guest this week, when I was reading a little bit about um, Shannon Hale, mm-hmm. um, I just I was thinking about what Hannah's reading. My daughter Hannah's reading for books, right. and I'm really amazed at how I noticed that she did a few uh, uh, graphic novels. And it's amazing to see what's popular with with kids these days. And you know, the ever she wrote one of the Ever After High series, mm-hmm. and it's just really neat to see the type of stories that they're getting into. And how the different companies all kind of when something hits, they do it. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. When, it's, I don't know where I'm going with this other than to say it's, it just seems different from when I was like I was into Hardy Boys and stuff like that. But it, it's you know what I mean? It's kind of morphed a little bit. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's I'm right there with you. I mean, when I was a kid, I read a lot of Hardy Boys and like Encyclopedia Brown. And, right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, those are the kinds of things that my daughter likes now. Like she likes she likes the newer Nancy Drews. Right. Um, she tried the old original ones and she didn't quite latch onto them. And, uh, and you know, she likes a lot of the same stuff that I did, but there's, yeah, what's cool is that, and I don't know if this is just a generational thing or if it's just because of the amount of publicity that goes into stuff now and, you know, social media has sort of made everything smaller, like the right. world, 
But like when I was a kid, I don't really know how much my parents knew about the books that I was reading. I agree. Like I like not that I was reading anything inappropriate, but it was like I was reading Hardy Boys or I was reading, you know, the Beverly Cleary Mm -hmm. Ramona books or I was reading, um, you know, there whatever it was. There were certain series that I really, really liked, Um, but it wasn't like. I didn't really like share a lot of those interests Mm -hmm. with my parents, you know, there was a big disconnect, but I feel like now a lot of parents are like super connected to what their kids are reading. And that might be because a lot of what they're reading deal with characters in worlds that, you know, are familiar to us. Right. So like they might be reading a book about, you know, like Batman or something like that, Mm -hmm. or like Iron Man that takes place in a world that we already know is familiar or they're rebooting characters um, like the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. So right. it's familiar to us. But yeah, I feel like now us with our kids, like we're much more connected um, to what they're reading. And I feel like I'm at least a lot more interested in what they're reading. So much of what right. I hand to my daughter or she brings home from the library, I'm like, oh, that looks cool. I want to mm-hmm. read that too. Well, and yeah. they all have like really awesome covers. And not yeah. that you should judge a book by it, but you know, but, really but we do. You know, game, we right? always like, say, don't judge a book by its cover, yeah. but we totally do. <laughs> like nice and colorful. You remember the old Hardy Boys book? They were like blue with a hand drawn picture. I mean, they're they're, yeah. they're good. They're really awesome in their own regard. But I mean, compared to today, that wouldn't yeah. even wouldn't even stand up. <laughs> Although I have to admit, I still have. I'm looking at them right now. I still have a shelf full of all of my old Hardy Boys books. Those blue hardbacks. Right. And I just I love the they art. They are awesome. Books. I yeah. still do. I go to used bookstores now, yep. and I still see those old books, mm-hmm. and um, I want to pick them up just because of that art. Well, and and the other funny thing is they have the same smell no matter where the, the Hardy Boys books. <laughs> you know when you flip the pages, just yeah, it's books. the old paper. It's must. It's, awesome. it's dust at this point. I mean, oh, it's like just it's, old paper. It's, it's magical book smell. Let's call it that. So this week you interviewed Shannon and Dean, Jamie. How was that conversation? Lonely without you. Lonely. <laughs> lonely. It, it was. It was lonely without you. But okay. as we said before, you know, scheduling, whatever, whatever, kids, whatever, whatever. Yeah. We have, you know, certain times when the guests have availability and one mm-hmm. of us doesn't. Um, so, but yes, I talked to Shannon and Dean. Um, we kind of, we, we primarily talked about their Princess in Black series, right. uh, which is up to three books now. That's what they work on together. Uh, Shannon is very prolific in what she's written. She's written a lot of other books across a lot of different genres. So we talked a little bit about, um, you know, her career and her other books, but we primarily focused on the Princess in Black series, which is phenomenal if you haven't read it. Um, they're up to three books, and you'll see in the, in the in our conversation they've got plans for several more. Um, and uh, I'm excited about that because it's a big hit here. My daughter loves it. My son loves it. I think it's super cute. Um, it's got a lot of the books have a lot of charm, uh, but we talk about, um, you know, away from, you know, the specifics of those books, we talk about, um, the process of, of developing the book, developing, working with the artist. Um, Shannon has, has some really great stories about, you know, starting off as a writer, um, and going through just mountains of rejections and how as a creative person, you have to sort of persevere and just believe in, in your worth and believe in what you're creating. And just despite all of those rejections that you're going to get invariably, anybody's going to get no matter what they do. Mm -hmm. And you just have to push push on. And, um, you know, the first acceptance is not the end of the road. It's sort of, that's the beginning of the road, you know, because the first time you get accepted, 
um, that doesn't make everything else that comes afterward any easier. Right. Um, yeah. So it's a great conversation. Um, you know, it's, if you're a fan of their books, you're going to love sort of the inside peek um, in, in how those books were made and in Shannon's thought process. And if you've never heard of them before, it's a great conversation about creativity and where it comes from and what you're, what, how to, how to continue on in the face of adversity sometimes. All right, so we're going to play that conversation for you right now. Hope you enjoy it. Dean and Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I have to start off by saying this is just my daughter was thrilled when I told her that I was talking to you guys because she is a huge fan of the Princess in Black books. Um from, from when number one came out. So with every new book that comes out, she gets even more excited. Um, so yeah, so this is this is a thrill for her and me, but really for her through me, <laughs> I guess you Italy, could say. She is a very intelligent and stylish young lady. Absolutely. <laughs> but you know, I'm, I'm partial, so I like to hear it from other people as well. <laughs> um, so let's, you know, let's talk about The Princess in Black first. Um, I guess... Could you just talk a little bit about the origin of the character in the books? I understand that the idea actually came from your daughters. Yeah. So um, our first daughter was when she was four years old, she just started getting into princess stuff. And one day she was wearing this, her favorite little skirt that had butterflies on it. And she was pointing to the different colors. And she said, pink is a girl color and purple is a girl color and yellow is a pearl, uh, is a girl color, but not black. Mm. And I mean, I'm like, where does she get this? Yeah. You know, I just, I just I hate the, what is this weird concept that, you know, certain colors belong to certain genders. And I said, girls can wear black. I wear black. And she kind of looked at me like, yeah, whatever. Cause I'm a mom. I'm not a girl. Right. And I, and then I said, well, bad girl wears black. Which should and be thought, the end of any conversation. Exactly. Right. The, <laughs> end. That, the end. <laughs> Mic drop there. And, but she had the audacity to come back at me and say, mama, princesses don't wear black. Oh. And I was like, oh, I couldn't think of a princess who did wear black. And my mind started running over that. And I remember I went to exercise that day. I, I hate exercising. <laughs> so I always listen to an audiobook when I'm exercising to take my mind off it. But my mind was going so full blown on this idea of the of a princess who wears black that 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 story was enough that, that I didn't have to listen to an audiobook. And as soon as Dean got home from work, I was like, the princess in black. Right? Right? Right. <laughs> and she fights monsters. And she fights She's monsters. a superhero. She's a superhero. And um, we kind of like the concept of it being um, kind of a Zorro, one of those proto superheroes, you know, like Zorro. And pulpy kind of a thing. Yeah. Scarlet Pimpernel, those early ones that had, uh, you know, their public persona was, was that kind of wealthy, um, and, and seemed light-minded, um, someone who doesn't really care about anything, and that's their secret identity. And then they secretly put on the black mask and go fight crime. Awesome. And and I, when when I first read the book, um, I think from my perspective, I was immediately taken with the name Frimple Pants. Um, and so I need to know who came up with that name because I love it. I love it. I love all the names in the book, but Frimple Pants is every time I read it, I giggle. I can't, I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> that was, I don't know where the name came from. That was a first draft name and it was just a blessing from on high. Yeah. It, you know, and we say actually it was Shannon because, um, 
Dean is used to be like a professional namer, and he names pretty much everything. Pretty except much everything else, pants. except for pants, and that's everybody's favorite. So it's like, dang, bro, got you your own game. Well. Okay, I have to ask, what is a professional namer? Oh, well, he did naming and branding, you know. Okay, so marketing stuff, but you came right. up with all the clever names that get caught in people's minds. Right. Right. Got also, it. neighbors, I point at them and give them nicknames. That's, you know. Excellent. And for some reason, they don't, they don't like that as much. No, no, so I keep it secret. Yeah. Well, when you name them things like Frimple Pants, I can see yeah. why. <laughs> Who wouldn't want that name? I know. It's identity. How, how did you guys make that decision to work together on the series? Well, we made a decision to get married. Right, and, so we have to sort of work together. And then, and then it's so awkward when I'm like, honey, I'd really rather work with this other guy. <laughs> and, yeah. Well, you know, and there were monsters in it. And there I wanted, monsters. you know, I love monsters. And if anybody's going to write anything about my people, I want to have a say. <laughs> we, um, so I, I was writing books. Dean's always been a creative person and, uh, nerd. and, a, and a nerd, right. But he hadn't pursued writing per se. And I'd been writing books for a number of years and he'd been an in-house editor for me. Um, you know, he's just great sounding board for what I was doing uh, until I, I wanted to write a graphic novel. This was, you know, 10 plus years ago. Mm -hmm. And at the time children's book publishers weren't publishing graphic novels. It was really only comic books. Um, but I've met so many kids who, um, well, I get these people coming to my signings and the mom would say, my daughter, 10, 12, 14 year old daughter, whatever, loves Princess Academy or whatever book of mine. And then there would always be a brother or sister off in the back. And I'd say, what about that one? And they, <laughs> and they kind of whisper to me, oh, he or she isn't a reader. Oh, right. and, ugh, I, I hate, hate that. that. But I know from experience that every kid is a reader if they have the right book. And some kids are visual learners. And so um, comic books just... Well, Dean grew up reading comics. Oh, yeah. No, I would not have kept reading if it had not been for yeah. the X-Men. Right. And so I really wanted to write one and introduce that into the children's book world, um, that medium. But I was not a lifelong comic reader. That's It's a new, it's, an, it's a fairly new medium for me. I only got into it um, when after I married Dean. So I wanted him to co-write it with me um, to make sure that I was taking full advantage of, of that medium. And it turned out um, all kinds of people besides us were having the same idea at the same time. And now graphic novels are huge in right. the children's book world. And I think it's the biggest change that's happened in children's books in the last 10 years. I'm so nerdy about children's books. No, I, I was. I don't have to apologize for being nerdy on this. Never, so. never apologize for that. Because, <laughs> you know, we nerd, we're, we're, we're total nerds and we geek out about this all the time. And I was oh, just going to say that. But, I mean, it's, it's amazing how much the children's book industry and the landscape of what's available has changed in those 10 years, because you're right. 10 years ago, it was Marvel and DC and a handful right. of others putting out the, you know, comics and graphic novels. Gra I mean, I don't even think graphic novel was a term yet right. in, in wide circulation. And now it seems like every other book is trying to crack that sphere. And they're trying to say, look, we're, we're a graphic novel. And they're, I mean, they're winning awards left and right. And it's major awards. Major it used to awards. only go to prose books. It's been a massive change. And I'm so glad. Yeah. You know, we have one kid, our boy will read anything and always has, um, since he was four years old. And our <clears throat> second child, our daughter is such a visual learner. And yeah. I'm so glad that she now exists in a world where there's so many different graphic novels of that you know there's there's not there's there's lots of graphic novels but there's also different lots of different kinds, kinds so she yeah. can find the ones 
of her personal interests. Absolutely. It's been a massive change. Um, it takes a lot of re-education. Something that sometimes we do is we'll speak to parent groups and teacher groups and librarian groups to explain the research, why graphic novels and comics are actually good and will not rot your child's brain. And I mean, there's plenty of research that kids who read comics and graphic novels have higher vocabulary than their non-graphic novel reading peers. They are they read more widely. They will read a more variety of genres. They're learning a visual literacy. Um, it helps visual learners be able to become more fluent in in reading uh, words, but it also helps non-visual learners to learn to become better visual learners. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they're just, they're terrific tool. Do you find, I mean, with it becoming so much more mainstream now and, and, and much more accepted than it ever was before, but are you finding that there are still parents who are resistant to it and think oh. that, oh, think okay. that they're, you know, like, oh, yeah. like, oh, comics are, yeah, you know, it's, it's not real reading. Oh yes, yeah. and oh, yeah. and and teachers as well. Um, I hear from librarians at this point are pretty much all in. Yeah, uh, librarians they, of, they do most of them. Yeah, librarians get reading. Librarians are just tapped in. Uh, children's librarians, both public and school, tend to really. Um, There's such tremendous resources in literacy. Anyway, but they tell me, you know, teachers will come Horror in. Stories. Yeah, teachers come into the library, let their kids pick out a book, and they'll say, uh, it "Has to be a real book, so yeah. no graphic novels." <laughs> Or, you know, booksellers that. will tell me the same stories that parents will, um, oh, this, it's so, I have so many really sad stories actually that kind of break your heart. But one bookseller was telling me the other day that a woman came in and her daughter was not doing her, her daily reading and she was behind in her reading. So she needed to get some books. So she would caught up. And so the bookseller was trying to find some books that might interest her. And the girl picked up Smile by Raina Telgemeier, oh, which yeah. is a fantastic graphic novel. And has reached so many readers. And the girl was like paging through it. And she's like, her eyes light up. And she's like, mom, can I get this? And she's like, absolutely not. Um, because you ha I'm not going to reward you for not doing your reading. Uh. So it would, it would have been an, a, re a reward to get a book she liked reading. And she needed to make sure reading was a punishment. <laughs> oh, uh, my it's God. Just, and that's, so that's the mentality you're, you're fighting against. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a long it's a long ground war, yeah. you know, yeah. that it's, it's not going to be one in one battle. So we, uh, but we talk about it as much as we can. Yeah. I can't help it. As you see, I, <laughs> I perk up on the topic whenever I can. Yeah, no. And, and it's, it's so great to, to hear people like you who are so, you know, who have the outlet and have people listening and just evangelize about it. Because I mean, we've, in our house, uh, we, we, it's everything, you know, if it's words on a page, I don't care if there are pictures or not. I mean, we read, we read, chapter books we read novels we read comic books graphic novels anything my kids love it all and so we have no problem just putting a book in kids hands and letting them go to town but it always surprises me when i hear you know stories like what you're saying and it shouldn't surprise me my brother-in-law i can say this because he doesn't listen but my <laughs> my brother-in-law is it, you know sort of has the same mentality you know my my nephew wants to read you know amulet cut that cause mm -hmm. keep books and he's like, oh, no, that, that doesn't count as real reading. You need to read something for a class. Your teachers won't think that's real reading. You know, if they has, he has like a certain number of pages he has to get through. And it's it's so, so frustrating to me. So I can only imagine because you hear so many more stories about this than I ever would. So I can only imagine the frustration you must feel. It is frustrating. And along with, you know, not accepting things like graphic novels as real reading, there's so much uh, anxiety around 
levels that kids have to be reading at whatever level they are. They yeah. can't read below their level. They always have to be challenging themselves because heaven forbid reading ever become a comfort zone right. for children right. and something they enjoy doing. And then there's also there's different schools have different systems to tell if a book counts or not, you know, yeah. <laughs> how many points it's worth Ugh. or, you know, um, it has to have a certain, it, it has like a, a score. Yeah, I forget what that score is called. Yeah. And that's just, and so kids will pick up books and then check to see if they will get credit for it. And if they won't, even if they would enjoy reading it, they put it down because yeah. they're going to get credit for the, it. The flesh Kincaid score is too low or whatever. You know, they're yes. using. Oh. Ugh, drives me nuts. <laughs> and and that's just the sure way to raise non-readers yeah. right there. Yeah. And we know that um affluency and comfort with reading directly leads to success in every area of life, whether it's jobs or school, any kind of class, not just English class. And so to get kids to read for pleasure and then develop their skills through something they enjoy is gonna have a great benefit. To yeah. turn it into a chore and something they hate. I just don't get that mentality. Yeah. It's so sad. No, I know. If I didn't have comics to sneak back to while they were assigning, they started assigning those things in high school that were so just sort of pedantic and boring. Yeah. And I would have fallen out of love with reading if I hadn't been able to retreat back to the Doom Patrol or, you know, somebody, you know, the comics that I was reading at the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, working together, getting back to that, um, do you guys enjoy the collaborative writing process in general, or is that something that really you'd only consider working with each other because you're so close? Well, I would only consider working with her, but I think she has more experience collaborating generally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm a more collaborative person, yeah. person yeah. personality-wise. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, we really enjoy oh, yeah, working no, I together. Um, at least I enjoy working with you. Yeah, no, and I say... And I you, enjoy, tolerate, yeah, right, you tolerate right. it, so... That's sweet of you. Yeah. Um, no, I, we, we have, you know, we've known each other for so long now. We've been married 16 years, but we were good friends for 11 years before that. And uh, we've been through everything. And we're only 30 years old now. So right. It's just, amazing yeah. how that yeah. works out. But um, so we get each other. We, we, we get where the other person is going. Um, and we've just, I don't know how many books we've written together. So we did the, we did the graphic novels mm -hmm. and then we took a bit of a, break because he was working full time and it was really hard yeah. to, um, to get for him to, you know, come home from work and do kids in the evening and then try and, you know, you're exhausted before bed to, to write. So we like, so we didn't do any collaborative work for several years until princess of black came around and it just felt natural. This right. was just a, this was just an idea that felt natural for him to participate in. And it was short enough that we could do Is that. The other in um, <laughs> no, no. So, so now we're, we're climbing quite a bit. So, but two and a half years ago, I was writing, um, a book called ever after high mm -hmm. and it's based on a line of Mattel toys. Mattel had contacted me through the publisher, little Brown to write this book and it ended up just being a hoot. They were terrific to work with. And, uh, it's a comedy and I love writing comedy. So I had a great time with it. The problem with it is it was a super tight deadline, way faster than I usually do, but I did it. It was, and it worked out great. And I signed up to another book and I was working on that and they came back and they were like, wow, this book is blowing up. Um, can you do three more in the next year? And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, and I might have been able to, if I hadn't been writing this other book at the same time. And I said, well, if Dean can do it with me. And they said, 
okay. And they wanted to keep just my name on the cover because of consistency for the series. But and they I s- tend to scare people generally. Right. <laughs> He's alarming. Yeah. And, and so I called him at work and I said, sweetie, put in your notice. No, oh, no. And uh, that's a scary thing. So it's been two and a half years now that we both been, we've been making a living at writing and. Oh, it's so awesome though. It's the best job I've ever had. Really? It's, it's both awesome and stressful. Yeah. I mean, you get paid, like, you get yeah, paid twice yeah, a year right. and you never know how much it's. <laughs> so that's, I mean, literally that's the truth. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, so it's a very, very scary, very unstable profession. And you don't have any benefits, you know, there's no paid leave. There's yeah. no one, yeah. you know, med- medical insurance or, you know, any yeah. sort of yeah. 401k matching. Yeah. Or anything. <laughs> so it's, it's unnerving and awesome at the same time. And so now because he's home, we're doing a lot more together. And right now what we're working on, Squirrel Girl. <gasps> I heard. I'm very excited. So fun. So <laughs> fun. I love. I, I mean, I feel like I've been preparing all my life for this book. <laughs> yeah. It's so fun. It's it's probably the funniest book we've written. I think. Yeah. No, I think so. I mean, I, I think I think Rapunzel's Revenge was pretty funny, but this is like full on. Yeah. The, I mean, it's it's a you know sixty thousand word yeah. comedy. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think it's for first and foremost a comedy but it's also yeah. a superhero adventure yeah. obviously yeah, no, it's oh no it's great you know proportional strength and, and agility and speed of a squirrel yeah what's well, not and, to love really yeah, <laughs> honestly so is this through marvel yeah and when does that come out in february we think yeah no i think it's february big, i think yeah. that's the official date yeah. that's so exciting yeah it, it it really is um so we disney um, you know, bought Marvel. And so we work with the people at Disney publishing, right, right? But it is through Marvel press now had, and be honest, had either one of you one heard of, or two, were you familiar with squirrel girl before you got that book? Absolutely. Are you, do you, I know, was. Do you know who you're speaking to? <laughs> the <laughs> only reason I ask is because squirrel girl is kind of like a C list character until the <laughs> new, until the new book came out, the new, the new yeah. monthly. <laughs> oh no! I I, I knew. I, okay. I, I'd, I'd read yeah. Great Lakes Avengers and also the cool bits that that Bendis wrote with her as the babysitter for Luke Cage's baby. Okay. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. And then through him, he had he had told me he's like, he knew immediately when he read Squirrel Girl. He's like, oh, you would love this. Yeah. You would love Squirrel Girl, and of yeah. course, I did. But there yeah. was very little of her. And then Ryan North's comic came out, and and uh, Erica Henderson's, and uh, that's just fantastic. Yeah. I mean, everybody. From our five-year-olds, our, our nine-year-old, our twelve-year-old, and both of us love it. It's such a such a great yeah. comic. And that trade is like doing real well in that alternate book world rather than the comic. It is, yeah. Right. yeah. And and so they just announced they're doing just a straight-up graphic novel, Squirrel Girl graphic novel. Uh, Brian North and Erica Henderson that'll be out in the fall. Yeah. And that'll probably be released in bookstores, which I think is great because um, I think there's a real disconnect between comic bookstores and and. Mm-hmm. And regular bookstores, and it's nice to get that crossover. Yeah, um, I was intrigued to read that you, Shannon, had been writing for years um, before you really sold your first manuscript. And during that time that you were writing, would would you say that was it really for yourself as sort of a way to keep sane, or were you actively looking to publish? I didn't know anything about publishing. I didn't have any friends or family or. And, you know, and, and when I was growing up, I mean, now children's books authors, we travel around a lot and uh, visit schools. And so a lot of kids actually, you know, go to bookstores and meet children's authors. That didn't happen when I was younger. So, I, I mean, I really was very disconnected. I thought all children's 
book writers or all writers were extinct, you know, with mm -hmm. dinosaurs long, long ago when we were reading fossils. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I was just always a storyteller. Like I, looking back, I, I was the, the friend who was always making up the games everybody else would play. I'd make up little plays that I would get my brother and sister to act in. And when I had teachers that started us writing stories, um, it just lit a fire under me. And so I, I think I always hoped that, you know, I, I would get to keep writing books, but I didn't have a concept of it being a profession. Yeah. I, I got to imagine, though, that once you started, once you made that decision to say, OK, this is something that I could do. This is something that I could continue to do as a career. So I'm going to start submitting some manuscripts and queries and ideas. I'm sure you went through a lot of rejections. Everybody does. Um, yeah. What kept you going? It's hard to say. I think desperation <laughs> um, more than any kind of confidence in myself. Lunacy um, madness. Lunacy madness. It, yeah. I mean, it is sort of a mental illness. It's an obsession, right? That that despite everything telling you that you're not good enough, and even if you were, um, it's really not any like anything kind of profession that anybody would desire having unless you like stress and pain and insecurity. Um, and apparently, and a lot of people keep, do. <laughs> popular. Um, <laughs> I, um, I couldn't imagine being happy any other way. Yeah. She has a laminated roll of rejections that when, when she does uh, presentations, we'll just roll it out on stage and it's like, what is it? It's like a hundred feet long or something. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's important to keep. And especially once you find that success, however you define it for yourself, it's important to look back and see, not only see for yourself what you had to go through, but to as sort of inspiration for others. So especially when you're talking to kids who have no idea of what's involved with anything, but to say like, you know, no matter what you want to do, somebody's going to tell you no. And it's probably yeah. going to be a lot of people tell, who tell you no, but as, you know, as long as you stick with it and it's something that you really want to do, finally, ultimately you're going to find that first person to say yes. And then a lot more yeses will come. So I think, I've heard of a lot of authors that sort of keep a lot of their rejection letters and, and sort of trot them out as, yeah. as inspiration for others. I think that's great. They're like battle wounds, you know? Yeah. Like scars and, and you've earned them. So Absolutely. yeah, it, it is a, it is a hard process. It's a long process and it doesn't stop once you get your first yes. Yeah. Um, my very first yes ended up being my first novel, the goose girl that finally got a yes. It was rejected by everybody all of the who's who, the all the major publishers. And it was, it was um, accepted by a very small press at the time. There were only three employees in mm -hmm. the U S mm -hmm. and it went on to, I never was a bestseller, um, but it's a steady seller. And I don't know how many years it's been 12 or 13 years yeah. and it's still in print, which is super rare. Yeah. It's in, it's like, you know, 30th printing and has, has been voted on to like 100 best books of all time for teens, that wow. sort of thing. Yeah. So just to, you just don't, you yeah. just never know just because someone is not good enough for them doesn't mean it's not good enough. Right. But all the same before that book, you know, I did spend many years developing. I mean, writing is a skill. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you really do have to invest the time into studying it and understanding what works and writing badly and learning to revise and honing the internal editor and being able to read as a writer to break down what other writers are doing. It's a huge time of investment of many, many years to get to a skill level where you can 
start publishing. And I, with kind of instant publishing options, I, I'm a, I, I think some people um, aren't aware of how demanding it can really be. And right. you kind of have to, the writers I know, we're not good at anything else. <laughs> I mean, this is it. This is like all we got because we haven't had time to invest in any other skills. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I, I would imagine that's true for almost any creative pursuit, though. I mean, the people yeah. who ultimately find success have spent so many years and so much energy honing that skill that they've sort of excluded their ability to do much else. Right. Yeah. Uh, I want to get to that, come back to that in a minute, though, that, you know, the ease of, you know, putting your work out there now. But for both of you, when you're writing, how important is it for you to step back and sort of get perspective on what it is that you're writing? And I know a lot of young writers sort of one of the troubles that they have and a lot of the the difficulty that they have is they're not willing to edit and they're not willing to cut their manuscript and admit when something isn't working or is, or is bad. So like what, what advice would you give to writers who just can't let go like say, or can't start over or can't just say, you know what, we're going to scrap these four chapters and just start over. You know, that's really hard for me and has been, I, I think I'm only just now being able, you know, willing to do that. It's helpful to have someone who will do it for me yeah. <laughs> when we're working together. I'm the designated revisor. Um, but, but something that's really helped, it, you know, for me psychologically, when I, especially with cutting, um, you know, I'll have a line that I think, oh, this is, you know, it's just a great line, but it just doesn't fit. It's not, it doesn't, it doesn't fit in with the rest of the story. And if I can cut it and paste it into a document of cuts, yeah, you know, of things that I love so much but can't be in this story, even if I never use them again, I know I've got them. Yeah. <laughs> so it's got this weird security blanket where it, it enables me to... Takes the edge off of the pain yeah, of having to cut it. To yeah. be freer about that editing. But uh, no, re revision and editing is like key. Yeah. I, I think that um, there, there are mixed opinions about workshops, but I think they're a good thing, writing workshops, because when you're reading just published books, you're mostly reading like really high quality things. And it's important as a writer to go through a process where you read, read a lot of crap. You really need to read bad writing in order to identify what is good. And so although when you go through writing workshops, nothing you write in that environment ends up being any good because it ends up being kind of like a by committee writing, mm -hmm. but it, it, it teaches you how to, to read like an editor. Yeah. Well, that value of the editor is something that I like to champion. I, during the day, my, 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 you know, what pays the bills is I'm an editor. I don't, not, not in fiction. I work in educational publishing. So I am fully aware of what an editor does and can do for an author but I think that's sort of lost on a lot of people who have yeah. never done it before. Um, and that ties in with what I wanted to get back to with, you know, today it really has never been easier as a writer, as, as anything really, but as a writer to put your words out there and have them read by people. I mean, it's dead simple to put your writing online with self-publishing. I mean, it's fairly simple to get your book, you know, a physical book or an ebook. So number one, you know, what are your thoughts about all of that? The ease of just putting it out there. And do you think that that ease, does that ultimately work out to be a benefit or a hazard to a young writer? Because the editing process is, is usually cut out of that entirely. It's, it's totally, yeah, the last five years have totally, everything's <clears> changed <throat> so fast and so rapidly. 
Um, five years ago, people were predicting the end of traditional publishing. Right. And that's just not going to happen um, for a lot of reasons um, that maybe would be too nerdy for me to get into <laughs> right now. But um, it, it's hard to generalize about self-publishing and independent publishing because there are so many different ways to do it and kinds of people who do it. Um, it some people independently publish or self-publish as a way to put, to find beta readers basically. Mm -hmm. And so they'll put it out there and then people will write, you know, re what seem like reviews, but are really like critical responses to it. And then they rewrite and put it out there again. And so it's actually the, their publication is not the final stop, but just one step in a process of writing a book. Mm -hmm. They're edited by the Borg. Yeah, exactly. Of, of yeah. <laughs> Whereas when you're traditionally publishing, you've got your editor there and you're doing, and no one sees behind the scenes that you're editing for a year or multiple years until you finally get it polished and then put it out there. So I personally, um, when I was working on Goose Girl, I got so discouraged with all the rejections if back then there had been the ease of pushing a button and just putting it out there because I did want to share it, yeah. I probably would have. And I personally would have regretted that because, uh, first of all, I don't ever want to put out there anything. I, I, I don't think anyone should rush into it. Right. There's a lot of bad that comes with publishing, a lot of bad. And I don't, I wouldn't ever be wanting to people speed up the process before they're ready. Sometimes it feels like this is the best thing I've ever written but it's not the best thing you're ever going to write. Right. Give it time to really mature and develop your skills. So that, <clears throat> that's my personal opinion. <clears throat> but I think there's so many different options. I, I couldn't speak for everybody. Yeah. Um, one of, when it, when it comes to writing and writing advice, one of the most stereotypical pieces that, that is usually doled out is to, you know, quote unquote, write what you know. Um, and I don't, I think that's, I think that's incredibly limiting for writers because how can you possibly write about what you want to write about if you can only write about what you know, you know, it's, it's especially if you want to write speculative fiction. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, I mean, at what point does it feel comfortable for you as a creator and a storyteller to, to break out of that mindset? You know, at what point do you tell yourself it's okay, I can write a story that I have not lived. I've personally changed that motto to be right. What fascinates you? Yeah. If you're fascinated by something, you're much more likely to stick with it and keep exploring it. And research it. And research yeah. it and discover what you don't know, but what you need to know to tell that story. Um, I have to become an expert in, when I when I write, I, you know, I wrote a science fiction novel, for example, at one point. When I wanted to write it, I did not know the things I needed to know in order to carry it off. But I had to become an expert in those things in order to write it. And the research was fascinating and important. And by the end of the story, I, I, it was, I was writing what I knew, but I think it's more important to think about writing the actual process as an adventure, as exploration. That's the creative process. If you're just writing what you know, then you're just giving a report and that, that's boring. Who would do that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless you live like a super awesome, exciting alternate universe life, then. Right. You should write what you know. Yeah, I should. <laughs> That I should. guy should write what he knows, right? <laughs> Um, for, for both of you, is there, can you think back and say, you know, think to like one book or one author that you encountered and you said, yep, that's the moment that I wanted to become a writer. 
No, I don't. I don't think I can think back to there one are single moment. So many. Yeah. I mean, certainly, I know it was in fourth grade for me, <clears throat> which was the year my our teacher started us writing stories, and I because I have physical evidence that I wrote down, I want to be a writer when I grow up, yeah. and I it hadn't occurred to me to that point. So for me, it was more a teacher and a you know age ten that that really happened. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I never really thought that it was possible. I mean, you know, I. Uh, it seemed like too high of, of like it was something that the elite did, mm. you know, for years and years. And, and, and then, if, then I married you and you started doing it and I thought, and oh, I did, and I live in a clearly Swiss chateau. <laughs> anybody can do this. Anybody can do this. So maybe it becomes plausible, but yeah. in, you know, it, it, it's, you know, there are different things that you learn. So in terms of possibility, I think it was you, but in terms of like the power of, of writing, that I really, I loved, it, it, with comics, um, Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol, mm -hmm. back in the 90s, was it? Late 80s? Um, it's sort of, I wasn't reading many indie comics. I, you know, there weren't as many of them then. It was just Marvel and DC. But suddenly I was like, oh, wow, you know, you can, you can do a lot with this. Yeah. He, he was doing a lot of different weird stuff. And I thought, I mean, I never thought that, oh, I could do this, but I wished that I could. You know, I think it's really, um, it's important for kids to be able to see someone like them <clears throat> doing something they want to do. And I, I didn't have that when I was younger, but you know, and as I, even as I grew up and I started taking writing more seriously and I took courses in college and grad school, I never met a mom who was a writer. Like mm. all the women, there were men who were da dads that were writers that were our professors, but the women were, um, didn't have children. And I read more than one writer say that they couldn't write if they had children, that they had to focus um, solely on their writing, that men could do that because the wives take care of the kids. Huh. But, um, and so I had this concept that I couldn't be a writer and a mother. And in one weird way, that actually inspired me because I felt this deadline, you know? Yeah of like, I've got to get this done before I have kids because then it's going to be over. Mm. And um, I my first book was published and had been just been published and I just delivered the final manuscript for my second book the week before I went into labor with my first child. Wow. And then I thought, I'm well, done. it's all over now. <laughs> and uh, I took, I, was, I worked full time, but I took maternity leave and I thought, well, you now have a baby. This is my life. And I, after about two weeks of like forcing maternity leave, I was just getting so itchy. I was like, well, he naps a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably write during his nap. I have a lot more time than I thought I was going to. <laughs> it, once it became a priority, it became possible. Yeah. And so I was able to keep writing. But um, I think it uh, often the who we see as writers fit a certain type. Like you were saying, like, you know, you weren't the type. Yeah. You grew up in a, you know, a, a, a small town farm, small town and, farm and you're yeah. single mom yeah. and, and, you know, I just was not that yeah lower class yeah. mentally, right. As but, well you know, as economically yeah. uh -huh. and uh, De deficient intellectually. <laughs> <laughs> and there was nobody in your sphere that would no. pursue something no. like that. And I think a lot of writers are white and a lot of writers who are seen are white mm -hmm. and a lot of writers who are seen are able-bodied and, you know, any, and so any kid who 
might not fit a certain mold, might not feel themselves reflected back, and might not feel like it's possible. Right. So I feel like it's really important that that all different kinds of writers are published and visible to kids. Um, that we make sure that you know if we're have any influence in what writers we invite to our school or to a local book festival or anything, and make sure we're considering that we're not just inviting a lot of straight, able-bodied white men yeah. to represent the world. Yeah. Here, oh, here, here, here. Um, you've written, uh, you've written books that really cover a spectrum of styles and audiences. Um, you, you both have, I mean, so you've written, you were talking about graphic novels, you've done the princess in black, which are chapter books. You've done YA novels, adult novels. Is that by design? Does that sort of help it keep the process fresh and keep you sane? I don't think anybody with business sense would recommend doing what I do. <laughs> <laughs> what happens is that I, it's hard to make a Shannon Hill brand because yeah. I'm all over the place. Uh, my books are in five different places in a bookstore. And if you're all in one, one shelf after someone reads one of your books, it's so easy for them to find another one and then you sell better. Um, so that's really smarter, you know, if you're going to make a conscious choice. For me, it's simply a matter of boredom. I can't. Yeah. If it's if the book is not a challenge for me, I'm not interested in writing it. And um, so I'm constantly trying to do something I haven't done before. Yeah. I, I'm sure both of you have met thousands of maybe thousands, I guess, thousands of young readers, you know, during your career, your school visits, library visits, you know, um, conventions, including many, I'm sure, who want to become writers um, or artists some, themselves. What advice do you give them? Uh, well, you know, the one that comes up often is to read. Yes. Yeah. And write. Yeah. But but for no other, not, not, not vectored, not like toward a specific goal other than just because you, that is who you are. Yeah. Yeah. That is important. I also try and tell them, you know, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, <that's true. laughs> Change your mind. Run away. Get an engineering degree. Is a perfect, perfectly acceptable profession. No. Uh, that's James Dashner's job, wasn't it? Was yeah. He, he was an accountant. Yeah. yeah and he hated it. Yeah. And now he's a writer and a multimillionaire. So, you know, <laughs> It makes it really takes away my yeah, argument. That's true. But uh, no, I, I think um, what, a lot of the like emails and things I get will say, I've started writing a book. I've got three chapters. I need help knowing how to get it published. Mm -hmm. And I see writers jumping forward way too fast and worrying about publishing before they even have, you know, a book in hand. So um, I, I definitely encourage, especially kids, I, because there's a few high-profile kid writers, mm -hmm. a lot of parents start pushing their kids towards that. And that's just too much pressure, yeah. and it takes away the fun of it. There was a kid whose parents decided to publish publish him on uh, you know, on Amazon and create space, and someone pointed it out to me. Um, the comments on it were horrible. Mm. They were just mean, and I don't know how old this kid was, but... Why subject your kid yeah. to, to that? Um, let them write for fun without worrying about that kind of stuff. So that would be part of my advice. Um, I also think having writing buddies, as you get older, you get writing groups, people you write and exchange with, it kind of helps motivate you. Am I your writing buddy? Yeah, you're my writing lover. <laughs> oh. We're kissing now, but you can't see. Hey, now. <laughs> <laughs> it's I the family-friendly show. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
um, I think, you know, conferences and workshops are, are great. Getting connected with a community that's, that's like you is great. Yeah. Um, getting back to princess and black, I know we're running up against time and I'm, um, want to let you guys go, but, um, what's the future for the series? Are we, are we looking at more beyond these three? Yes. 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 The fourth one comes out in the fall. Okay. And the fifth one, the final, the following fall, and the sixth one, the fall after that. Excellent. Any, and, yeah. Any chance of a Princess Kneeswort spinoff? Because I love her. She yeah. is a major character in book five, and I don't want to be too spoilery, but I think you'll be pleased. Yeah. Okay. No, there's yeah, there's something awesome. Yeah. Um, and she definitely, you know, it was it was so funny. She was kind of a minor character until we named her Sneezewort. Which I named that one too. Oh no! Yes. Oh man, I'm schooling. I was you behind it. you on that. Yeah, yeah, you were. But once we named all after flowers, and once we stumbled on Sneezeport, it just came alive for her. And then the illustrator Laywin Fam, who's brilliant, um, she based Princess Sneezeport on her own awkward younger self. self. Oh, nice. With the, with the bad cut bangs and the two big glasses, and and once we saw her, we're like. Oh, she has to be in every book. So we actually had already written a couple more that she wasn't in, and we went back and in. changed them so that she could be in all the books. I'm so happy. <laughs> um, I know I said that was my last question, but since you brought it up, you talked about the art. I mean, how how involved were you guys from the beginning with sort of the uh, that development and the selection of the illustrator and how that came about? Well, we were so lucky on that. We were so lucky. We were very we're very smart about how we do this. And this is what we do. We when they say, "How about Laywin Fan Fam?" We say, "Yes, please." Yes, <laughs> and then she does the artwork, and we look at it, and we say, "It's brilliant." <laughs> and that's our involvement. Yeah. <laughs> Easiest she involvement need ever. Anything else from us? She's got it. <laughs> that's amazing. So I mean, you said that you know you saw Sneezeboard, and then you added her back in. I think that's probably. It, it, that's a rare thing to happen in children's books, right? Like you see the art and then that goes back to influence the story. It's usually the other way around. Yeah. I guess with a series book, you've got that, you know, ability yeah. to go back and forth. I Right now I'm actually um, working on a graphic novel also with Laywin Fam. I wrote a, a graphic novel memoir of my childhood friendships and she's illustrating it. And a man illustrating a graphic novel it's a lot of work. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think she's had three hours sleep for, you know, like four months in a row yeah. and oh, yeah. uh, she's worked so hard on it. And we definitely, even though I write the script for the graphic novel in advance, there's definitely a lot of going back and forth as she's, as she's drawing, she gets ideas and she contacts me and I, I'll change the script. Or once I see the art, I'll think, Oh, you know what? The art is expressing what I'm saying. So I can just take the text out here. And oh, but this this I is going to need some transition text because it's um, it's not doing enough on its own. So um, it definitely influences back and forth, which is how you know it definitely should be. It makes a better book. Yeah, amazing, Dean Shannon. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I'm so excited to hear that the series is going to continue because, like I said, we love it in this house. My son and my daughter both love them, so they both get excited when new ones show up. Awesome. Um, so yeah, we're very excited to hear there's going to be more and more Princess Sneezewort. It makes me happy. 
And more frimple pants is always a good thing, right? <laughs> you can you can tell your kids that individual bunnies were modeled after them. Okay, I, yeah, I will you tell pick, them. You pick them out and say, that, say that one's that you. you. <laughs> I sent them a photo and that's you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you guys so, so much. All right, that's it for this week on the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Now, at the beginning when we did our intro, I love the mood ambient sound in behind where Jamie is right now. It's thundering and it's just nice and peaceful. Yeah, it is. I, I'm sorry, you know, the lid the, the lid is off. I don't work in a, in a soundproof studio. Um, but yes, there's a thunderstorm outside right now. So if you heard any sort of loud bangs and stuff, it wasn't, you know, me throwing things. It was thunder. I almost wish it was like for a Halloween episode or something. We had a <laughs> in the background. <laughs> you can always add those things in and post stuff. You know? Yes, it's true. We could, but it's not the same. <laughs> no, not quite. All right. So Jamie, you had an article go out again this week for starwars.com. You mm-hmm. were talking about, you're getting tons of tweets right now <laughs> from people telling you the orders that they watched the movies in. Is that what's going on? Yeah, it was um, this week. It was sort of, took a look at what's your preferred viewing order. So if you're mm-hmm. going to introduce your kids or I, anybody it doesn't have to be kids, but if you're um, going to introduce somebody kind of new to the saga, so that really means kids. Right. Uh, what order do you watch it in? Do you watch it in episode order? Do you watch it in, you know, production order, the way they were made? Do you watch it in some crazy made up order? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the, I mean, the, the, the story that I wrote is sort of, you know, um, I reached out to a few different people who a couple of them have been on the ship. A few of them have been on the show. Um, people who are sort of steeped in star Wars for, for um, most of them are writers of, of some sort that they're steeped in star Wars. So I reached out to them to see if they had any thoughts about what their preferred order is. So right. I incorporated that into the post. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much what it was. Just your preferred viewing order. So what's your preferred order? You know, I don't know if I have one. I kind of skirted yeah. the issue. You know, I, I right. brought in other people's ideas and then I, you know, basically, spoiler alert, my conclusion was basically that it doesn't really matter what your order is. If you're introducing a kid to Star Wars, it doesn't right. matter where you start, just as long as you start somewhere. Right. Okay. So I think I think for me I wouldn't even I wouldn't even bother with the episode one, two, and three. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people don't. A lot of people but you know, it depends. One thing that I, I didn't really think about until I started, mm-hmm. I sat down to write about it was that um, how you want to view the films, which order, really depends on whether you think that the Star Wars saga is Luke's or Anakin's story. Okay. If you think it's Luke's story, then the prequels are pretty much irrelevant. Right. If it's Anakin's story, then they're kind of critical. Okay. That's, that's deep, man. That's, <laughs> that's getting deep about Star Wars. <laughs> so if you want to check out jamie's article maybe we'll link i don't know maybe link to it or you can find him on twitter and see where he writes um he is a writer for starwars.com so that's pretty awesome and hopefully some of you listening are coming over from starwars.com and if you are welcome <laughs> yes welcome to the madhouse <laughs> all right so that's i guess that's it i don't know is there anything else we want to go on about tonight i got nothing <laughs> Okay, we're good. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at the GBB Podcast. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast. And I'm Justin at 140 Justin C. And I'm Jamie at the Roarbots. And we will see you next week. Take care. (laughs) This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. 
you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.